Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17, again, just as we did last week. Genesis 2, 4 through 17, and as you're turning there, let's uh, take a moment to pray together. Our God and Father, our King and Covenant Lord, we come to you now asking that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts acceptable in your sight. We ask that you would speak now, for your servants are listening. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. Now I'm about to say something that might seem like heresy to some of you, but hear me out. Eternal life must be earned. Eternal life must be earned. Now is that true? Flashing lights and and warning alarms are probably going off in some of your minds right now. And that's okay. That's probably good. We teach here at Veritas and we know from the Bible that salvation and Eternal life are given to us as a free gift from God and Christ, but even still, listen, eternal life must be earned. And I want us to consider this morning that both of these claims are actually simultaneously true, that eternal life must be earned And that it's also a free gift given to us by God in Christ. And if you don't know how those two claims could possibly fit together, then just listen. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. In Genesis 2, 4 through 17. Let's listen now with reverence and rejoicing to the word of our God. Open ears and open hearts. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold in that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, this is our sixth week in the book of Genesis now, I think. We're slowly making our way through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because of how enormously important these chapters are for our understanding of the gospel and of the Bible as a whole. We want to take our time. And as we've taken our time, we've seen in Genesis 1, God create all things in heaven and on earth. And then in Six days, he's formed and shaped the earth into this inhabitable, hospitable environment for his human creatures, who we saw are made in God's own image, right? Humanity, out of all of creation, out of all of the creatures of the earth, in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, are set apart as sacred and distinctly valuable, all because we are made in God's image. And we saw that being made in God's image means lots of things regarding Humanity being intelligent, being relational, being moral creatures. And we saw humanity, as a result, possesses a specific vocation in the world, don't we? Right? We're given the role, all of us, as being kings and queens, as it were, that represent the rule of the one great king, the one true God of all heaven and earth. We're placed here to represent him and his dominion in the earth. That was all in Genesis 1 there. And the last week, we transitioned from looking at the cosmic creation in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 to looking at Genesis 2, 4 through 17 here, where we see the creation of humanity from, from somewhat of a different angle, right? While Genesis 1 emphasized God's great kingship and authority and transcendence, Genesis 2 tends to emphasize uh, God's kind condescension to us, His imminence, his nearness, his relating to us as our close covenant God. To sum up, Genesis 1 emphasizes God's kingship and Genesis 2 emphasizes God's closeness. And we saw that last week, didn't we? And how Genesis 2 reveals that we were made to live in reference to God and in relationship with God and in residence near God. We saw that as we looked at the manner in which God created the first man. We saw it as we looked at this this garden as a divine temple wherein God's presence rested and where humanity had fellowship with him. And we, we looked back at this garden and our state of being there with longing and aching and hunger. And we looked at it in this way, well, because it's all been lost, hasn't it? There we enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God. We enjoyed living in this state of innocence without guilt and shame weighing down our consciences. We lived without fear, enjoying a world, life in a world untainted by sin and suffering and sadness, all of that. There we enjoyed. And all of that has now been lost. And, 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 and what we're going to discuss this morning is going to help us hopefully understand a bit more about how that took place. We're going to look at this morning the covenant that God made here with Adam in Genesis 2, which is a covenant that Adam transgressed in Genesis 3, and that thereby affects us all to this day. 
So we're going to spend time here in Genesis 2, even while we, we might jump around to various other texts throughout the Bible that help us better understand Genesis 2. We're going to do a bit of biblical theology this morning. And my hope for us is to see that this, this truth, that humanity's initial generation here in the garden, it reveals that we were created and commissioned to live in covenant with God leading to eternal life. Genesis 2 shows us that we were created and commissioned to live in covenant with God leading to eternal life. And we're going to unpack that big idea with kind of three main headings here. Adam and his relationship with God. We're going to spend the bulk of our time there. Then we're going to spend a little bit less time looking at Adam and his representation of us and Adam and, his repre- and Adam and our redemption in Christ. But first, we're looking at Adam and his relationship with God. Now, I say that in Genesis 2, we see God make a covenant with Adam and with humanity. Most of us are probably not overly familiar with that claim. Most of us have probably never even considered whether or not there's a covenant being made here in Genesis 2. It's likely never been a thought that's crossed many of our minds. It might not seem as obvious to us as it might have to a uh, you know, your average ancient Near Eastern reader. That's most of us. But still a few of us maybe have considered this claim and think that there's no covenant being made here. Uh, some might think there's, there's no covenant being made here at all. It's a view that's fairly prevalent today. And still a few others here this morning have considered this claim before and been taught in this way and think that a covenant being made here in Genesis 2 is just an obvious given, right? We might call the covenant different names, Some call it a covenant of works, others call it a covenant of life, others the first covenant, perhaps something else, and I'm not so concerned with what we call it, to be honest, I'm not even ultimately concerned that you call it a covenant so long as you see the kind of formal relational agreement and arrangement present here in Genesis 2, which I would call a covenant. But I want you to see something of the formal relationship established between the Lord God and Adam here because this is an important part of the biblical story. It's going to help us better understand the Bible as a whole and in particular the gospel that our Bible is centered on. Now what is a covenant? It's not a word we use a lot today even even though the concept is actually everywhere around us. But if I could borrow from Ligon Duncan a little bit, I would say that a covenant is a binding relationship between multiple parties with parameters, promises, and penalties. A binding relationship between multiple parties with parameters, promises, and penalties, right? And so, in other words, it's a formal relationship with with binding agreements and obligations wherein there are certain benefits and blessings pledged if kept, as well as certain penalties if broken. Uh, Covenant relationships that we might be a bit more familiar with today would involve relationships like marriage. Uh, Marriage is a covenant relationship, right? It's a binding relationship between two parties. There are parameters in place. There are promises. There are penalties. Uh, Joining the military, which some of you have done. Um, you, You enter into a covenant relationship with whatever branch of the military you join it with the United States government. There are business covenants wherein two or more parties enter into binding commitments to one another that are meant to be mutually beneficial and wherein there are penalties if the obligations and commitments are not met. We, we practice covenant church membership here at Veritas because we believe that becoming a Christian means entering into a binding relationship with God and His people wherein there are certain parameters and promises and certain penalties if our commitments to God and one another are not kept. 
And understanding something about covenants is important for us because covenant is a majorly important thread in the biblical story. It is a core part of the structure of the Bible. It's the means through which God enters into and sustains his relationship with humanity. And you can see this as God repeatedly relates to humanity by way of covenant throughout the Bible, can't you? Right? You might think of God's covenant with Noah, which we'll see uh, as we work our way through Genesis. He makes a covenant with Noah and with all creation in Noah in Genesis 9. You might think of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 12 and 17. You might think of God's covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel in, in Exodus 19 through 24. You might think of the Davidic covenant with uh, God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 or of the new covenant in Jesus in the New Testament. All of these are God's covenants with his creatures. They're a core part of the story of the Bible. They're intimately connected to our understanding of the gospel. And yet all of these covenants are better understood, I think, if we understand something first of the covenant that God makes with Adam and all humanity in Adam here in Genesis 2. Again, not everybody agrees. There's a covenant being made here. And typically the reason uh, we think that is because, you know, the word covenant is not being used anywhere here in Genesis 2, right? You don't see the word covenant here. And we need to understand that just because a word isn't present somewhere doesn't mean the concept isn't present there. Uh, Just for example, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes his covenant with David, and the word covenant is nowhere to be found. And yet there is most certainly a covenant being made with David there. And just so, even while the word covenant is not used anywhere in Genesis 2 here, the concept is here. And in fact, in Hosea 6-7, the prophet Hosea there compares the nation of Israel's transgression of the Mosaic covenant to Adam's transgression in Genesis 3. He says there, listen, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me. In other words, he says, Israel's transgressed my covenant just as Adam transgressed my covenant in the garden. Because there is indeed a covenant here. There's a binding relationship between two parties. There are parameters. There is a promise if those parameters are kept. There are penalties if they are not. And so what we see here in Genesis 1 and 2 it walks like a covenant, talks like a covenant, smells like a covenant to me. I, I want you to see that as we look at each of these P's here in Genesis 2. First, there are two parties involved. First, of course, there's, there's God. And again, remember from last week that he's not just referred to as God here, translating the Hebrew word Elohim that we saw again and again in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, he's repeatedly referred to as the Lord God. Remember, we saw last week, that's translating two words, Yahweh Elohim. Remember that Yahweh is God's personal covenantal name that he gives his people to call him by in Exodus 3, right? He's called Yahweh Elohim repeatedly here again and again throughout this chapter, emphasizing God's identity as our covenant Lord. And of course, there's also Adam as the second party. Not just Adam only, but really all of humanity in Adam, which we'll get to in a few moments. But the Lord God here makes his covenant with humanity. And you can easily see why that is, right? He makes his humanity, he makes his covenant with humanity because humanity alone has been created to, to, with this ability to live in close covenant relationship with God. He created humanity with this ability to commune with God and know God and be known by God. He created humanity to fulfill 
God's purposes in the earth, to rule and reign on his behalf as kings and queens. And so here he creates and calls and commissions humanity to represent him as his covenant people, to know him in covenant relationship and to be placed in the garden to minister as his covenant priests, which brings us next to the parameters. There are two parties here. There are also parameters put in place between these two parties. There are benefits that the Lord blesses Adam with, and there are obligations placed upon Adam as well. He bless, God blesses Adam in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, remember, with this divine calling and purpose in life to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. He blesses Adam with provision of life there in Genesis 2, 7. If you look at Genesis 2, 7, he, he provides him, blesses him with land in Genesis 2, 8, in Genesis 2, 15. He provides Adam with this, this abundant feast, this delicious food in Genesis 2, 9 and 16. That's the lavishly generous God. He bestows upon Adam all of these blessings and benefits. Before Adam did anything right or wrong, good or bad, even knowing what Adam was going to choose, he blesses Adam because that's who he is as God. But then he also calls Adam to keep certain obligations, doesn't he? And what are they? Well, we see one in verse 15. God called Adam to work and keep the garden. He placed Adam in the garden to work and keep it. It says Adam was called to work the garden. He's called to prune and harvest and pluck up and plant as the seasons call for. And he's called to take good care of the land that God has prepared and placed him in. He was called to keep it as well, which is a word that means um, to like guard or protect something. We see here maybe the, the first inkling of the presence of evil and of this coming serpent that we'll come to see in Genesis 3. Adam is called to guard the garden from such creatures and defend the place that God has placed him to dwell. And not only that, but remember Genesis 1.28 as well, where humanity is blessed but also called and commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it indicating to us that Adam was called to multiply human creatures, would eventually, would eventually mean expanding out of the garden. Remember, that the garden was already subdued and cultivated and well-ordered. And that means that Adam and his descendants were then called to do the same with the rest of the earth, weren't they? The rest of the earth was not like this garden paradise yet. It was still wild and untamed, but humanity was meant to expand out of this garden and to cultivate and order and develop the rest of the earth in a way that reflected this garden paradise that God had placed humanity in. They were to, to Edenize the world, if I could put it that way. Those are part of the parameters here. But then furthermore, God called Adam to complete trust in himself as the covenant Lord in this relationship. And that's symbolized to us in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 9 tells us about these trees, right? It says, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of the good and, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So he's saying, you're... You're provided with all of these trees for food and pleasure. That's part of the blessing here. That's part of the benefit, the covenant. 
there's an obligation placed on Adam too. You're not to eat of this particular tree. This tree, God said, is off limits. Why? Well, because this tree was held out as the means through which Adam and Eve would then break their covenant relationship with God. If they partook of this tree, they would be rebelling against God's covenantal authority in their life. You think about the name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After they eat of it, in Genesis 3.22, the Lord says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And upon first glance of that, you might think, well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? No, what's wrong with knowing good and evil? Well, here's the thing. In partaking of this tree, in essence, Adam and Eve were seeking independence from God in determining what is good and evil. They're saying, by partaking of this tree, they're saying, I don't want to know and discern what is good and evil from God and what He has said. I don't want to know from His Word. I want to determine what is good and evil for myself. I want to, I want to be the final arbiter for what is good and evil, right and wrong, true and false. I want to come out from God's good authority and make my own way in life and in the world. That's what's represented by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A life of autonomy and independence and rebellion against God and an official disregard for God and His Word, making ourselves judges and kings in His place. And so humanity here was called to work and keep the garden and to Edenize the rest of the earth and to do so in submission and loyalty to God and His Word as the covenant Lord while He provides and cares for us. Those are, those are the parameters. But there's also a promise held out here for Adam as well. If Adam remains faithful and loyal to God, there is a promise. There's something he will gain. There's a benefit that he will eventually come to enjoy. And that that might seem strange to some of us because perhaps we've been taught that everything was actually perfect in the garden. Sometimes as Christians, we'll say that the garden was a place of utter perfection and that what God is doing in the rest of the Bible is trying to get us back to this garden where everything was perfect. And you know, what, what more could we want than what we had in the garden? What could improve our situation there? What's better than perfection? We should understand here that while what humanity had in this garden was indeed delightful and wonderful and pleasurable, it also wasn't perfect. Because notice that humanity existed in a state of probation here. It's not the kind of probation that, you know, a judge might give someone for committing a crime, but the kind of probation you might have when you start a new job, a new vocation. The kind of probation that if you succeed, you get certain benefits, like keeping the job permanently, maybe an increasing pay, job security. But if you fail to meet the expectations, well, the, the, the job is lost. Well, similarly, Adam is in a state of probation here. He can fail here. He can fail to keep his end of the relational agreement and thus fall, which frankly doesn't sound like perfection, does it? And furthermore, remember part of Adam's and humanity's mission here. The the, the Garden of Eden, it only takes up a portion of the earth, but there's still land outside the garden that's wild and untamed and in need of being subdued and filled. That's not perfection either. And still more than that, it also seems like humanity's fellowship with God, while still being unbroken in the garden, 
it seems like it's still intermittent, doesn't it? Right? It's, it's not constant. Because remember, the serpent comes into the garden in Genesis 3 to tempt Adam and Eve, and you just kind of left wondering, well, where's God? Well, he comes to find them later, after the fact, when he comes to have fellowship with them in the garden. So, so communion, fellowship with God is, is unbroken in the garden, but it's not constant, it's intermittent. None of that sounds like perfection. Perfection would be more like what we have when Jesus comes back, right? What we see in the end of the Bible when he comes back and ushers in the new heavens, the new earth, where this entire earth is gardenized and made into a sanctuary of divine presence, wherein we experience unbroken, constant fellowship with God, wherein we will have actual irreversible eternal life that cannot be taken away from us. So even while the garden sounds pleasurable, it doesn't sound like that. And yet I want us to see here that perfection is still held out for Adam here, promised and symbolized in the tree of eternal life, or the tree of life, rather. If you look at verse 9, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, Genesis 2 doesn't say a lot about this tree of life, but from what we see in the rest of the Bible, we can deduce that the tree of life is held out here as a promise that if Adam and Eve are faithful in what they've been called and commissioned by God to do, that they will then take and eat of the tree of life, which will grant them this kind of eternal life of perfection that we've been talking about. If you look at Genesis 3.22, you'll see there that the tree of life is the means through which God grants eternal life. What does he say there? When he exiles Adam and Eve and all of humanity out of the garden, he says he does so lest Adam reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What happens if he takes and eats of the tree of life? He lives forever. And not only that, that's not the only place we see the tree of life in the Bible. We see it again in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. We see it in the new city, the new Jerusalem showing us that in the day when Christ brings that great city down, he will grant access to the tree of life to his people. And we will then take and eat and live forever with him there in this state of irreversible perfection with eternal life and a glorified existence. That's the promise held out here before Adam, symbolized for us in the tree of life. If he's faithful, if he keeps his covenant obligations, he will be granted to take and eat of the tree of life, gaining, earning eternal life. But with that promise, there's also a penalty too. If Adam fails to keep covenant, if he's faithless before God, if he transgresses God's command and partakes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead, proclaiming independence from God, autonomy from God, rebelling against God as the covenant Lord, what happens? It says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Hebrew is emphatic here. If we were to translate it literally, it would say, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, die. Repeating the word with a sense of urgency and emphasis. Much ink has been spilled regarding what is meant by the word die here. The Bible as a whole shows us that what's meant here is a lot more comprehensive than we might have ever even imagined. Obviously, on the one hand, what is meant here, death means receiving God's condemnation 
and being exiled from his presence. And that took place immediately on the day, right? In Genesis 3, humanity is condemned by God and exiled from the garden, exiled from the God who is our life. Which results, of course, in spiritual death. Now, Ephesians 2.1 tells us that all of humanity is born dead in trespasses and sins as a result of the fall. We're, we're all spiritually dead. Of course, furthermore, our spiritual death terminates in our physical death, doesn't it? And physical death doesn't take place immediately, but as the Lord God says in Genesis 3.19, humanity will return to the ground for you are dust, he says, and to dust you shall return. Even still, that's not, actually, that's not actually the worst of it. The worst is actually Revelation 2014, what it calls the second death, which is an eternal death. Not to be confused with a state of eternal non-existence. No, the second death, eternal death, biblically, means an eternity of conscious suffering in hell. As Jesus puts it in Mark 9, 47, it means being thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the penalty for rebellion against our covenant God. These are the parties. The parameters, the promise, the penalties laid out here in God's relationship with Adam in Genesis 2. But even more, friends, I, I want us to see that this is not just a bit of interesting history that we can look on at from a distance. This is not a subject worthy of cold doctrinal analysis this morning. No, what takes place here ultimately and intimately involves each and every single one of us because here Adam was representing us. Look with me next at Adam and his representation of us. We'll move through these next two points much more quickly. You know, we mentioned the parties involved earlier. We obviously see God and Adam as the, the, the parties of this covenant, but we might not as readily see the fact that we are a party to this covenant as well. Because in the garden, Adam was representing us. He represents not just himself, not just his immediate family, but because we all descend from him, Adam represents all of us. And, and while this might not be explicitly stated here, it is implicit in the text, and it is explicitly stated elsewhere, perhaps no more more clearly than in Romans 5, 12 through 21. If you want to turn there, I won't read all of this here, but suffice it to say, in, in Romans 5, we read statements like we see in verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We read statements like verse 14 saying that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We read in, in verses 18 to 21 that as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I know that's a lot of complicated theology going on in that passage, but if I could just boil part of what it says down to it, very simply for us, it's this, that all of humanity... We are born condemned and corrupted and sentenced to death. 
because of our father Adam, because we were born into his family, because he was representing us in that garden when he fell, we all now belong to the people who have broken covenant with God, and thus we all stand condemned, corrupted, and sentenced to death in Adam. He was our covenant representative. He transgressed the covenant, and thus we have transgressed the covenant with him. And old Isaac Watson, that I, I personally love, I have some sweet history with, puts it this way. Adam, our father and our head, transgressed the law and doomed us dead. God's fiery law speaks all despair. There's no reprieve nor pardon there. We stand condemned in Adam. And so now there's, there's, there's no hope for us to ever earn eternal life for ourselves again. Now, of course, in our Western and modern context, these truths can kind of rub us the wrong way, can't they? We, we are radical individualists, all of us. So we don't like to think of our, of our destinies taking place or, or being determined by someone rather than ourselves or something outside of our control. And so when we hear teachings like Genesis 2 and 3 and Romans 5, we, we might very well think, well, this is just not fair, right? I, I wasn't there. I didn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why should I be penalized for something I had nothing to do with? Why should I be condemned and sentenced to death and born in corruption due to a decision that was made ever before I was born? These are our thoughts as Western radical individualists sometimes. We need to understand that the Bible is very, it's, it, the world of the Bible is very different from our modern individualism. And the, the God of the Bible is not subject to our fallen notions of fairness. And we need to understand that the Bible portrays human beings as being much more closely connected to one another than we typically like to think. There's not really any such thing as private sin for any of us, much less someone who would represent us in the beginning, like Adam. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bovink speaks to this in his Reformed Dogmatics. He says there, humanity is an organism. It is not a heap of souls on a tract of land, not a loose aggregate of individuals, but an organic unity created out of one blood as one household and one family. Humanity is the image and likeness of God. He says we're united in our nature and being as humans. We are an organic unity, and as such, we were represented in that garden by our father Adam, whether we like it or not. And we intuitively know and experience this in many other aspects of life, don't we? And I remember when I was in middle school, me and my friends, I mean, we were, we were just super punk rock, if I could put it bluntly. You don't even know what punk rock is if you didn't see us in seventh grade with our blue hair and skateboards and NoFX t-shirts. I remember one of my friends had this NoFX t-shirt that he would wear sometimes, this was when George W. Bush was president. And this shirt had a picture of President Bush on it, and it said, not my president. And we thought it was so rad, man, you know. But I, I look back on that now, and I just think for multiple reasons, that's stupid. Right? Stupid. For multiple reasons. But one being, yes, he was. 
right? George Bush, at that time, if you were an American citizen, he was your president. Whether you liked it or not, whether you liked it or not, his decisions affected you as a citizen and determined the direction of this nation as a whole. When he declared war with Congress's approval, we, as a nation, were at war. Because as our president, he represented us in his office. And so as Americans, even as individualistic as we are, we are united in this common citizenship that is inescapable. We're much more intimately connected to one another as human beings than we typically like to think. It's just true as something, you know, as silly as football, right? You think about it, the Bengals, right? They, they had a rough start. A few games this year that were terrible. Joe Burrow was struggling a lot. You think about it, Joe Burrow, say he, he, he gets a flag for intentional grounding. The whole team gets the penalty. Jamar Chase, Mr. 7-Eleven and all that, he can't say, no, that's not fair. I didn't get the flag. Burrow got the flag. I shouldn't have the same penalty. No, because they are a team, because they are this unit, this unity together, the whole team gets the penalty. If Burrow gets sacked and fumbles the ball, if he throws an interception, the whole team suffers the turnover because what happens to the one is communicated to the whole because they're on the same team. And just so, because we are a part of this one human family represented by our father Adam in the beginning, when he fell, we fell with him. When he transgressed the covenant, we transgressed the covenant. When he was condemned, we were condemned with him. Paul says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We all stand condemned and sentenced to death in our father Adam. I just want you to think about what this means for a minute. What does this mean for our evangelism as Christians? What does this mean for those of us who are not Christians? This means that no human being is exempt from this. There's not one human being who's exempt from this. Each person must be gospelized. Each person must respond to the gospel with repentance and faith if they are going to be redeemed. That includes you, boys and girls. Parents, that includes your children. Do you realize this? Your children are not automatically Christians simply because you are a Christian. Your children are born in Adam and are thus born under condemnation. The, the same is true for those who don't even know or believe in Christianity or the Bible, right? R.C. Sproul was once asked this in, in reference to people who don't believe in Christianity. Maybe they're atheistic or secularistic, or maybe they even believe in some other religion, and maybe they have no knowledge or care about all this business of covenant we're talking about. And Sproul was asked, you know, are, are all these people in covenant with God? Are they under the condemnation of this broken covenant in Genesis 2 and 3? And Sproul would respond, well, it depends. Are the people you're referring to, are they people the answer is obviously yes. And if the answer is yes, then yes. Each and every single person you come across, each and every single human individual that has ever existed, from your neighbor across the street, to your coworker across the hall, to the people group 
who has never heard the name of Jesus across the ocean. All are born in Adam. All are born corrupt. All are born condemned. All are sentenced to death, and therefore all are in need of redemption if they are ever going to possess eternal life. Which brings us lastly to Adam and our redemption in Christ. Here's the good news in all of this. We stand condemned and corrupted and sentenced to death in Adam. Christ has come to redeem us. While the first Adam transgressed the law and doomed us dead, well, he was a type of the one who was to come. There is a second Adam, one who is both a son of Adam and the son of God, and he has come to be born under the law, to fulfill the law, and to establish a new covenant of grace wherein we are now represented by him as the second Adam. Harkening back to Romans 5, Adam's sin brought condemnation, right? Well, Christ's righteousness has brought justification. Adam's sin has brought death, right? Christ's righteousness has earned eternal life. Adam, Paul says, Romans 5.12, was a type of the one who was to come see the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. Why do we sing that? Because Jesus came and succeeded where Adam failed, and more, he has come to die in Adam's place for his failure. If you've been with us for a while, you might remember a couple of years ago when we looked at Christ's temptation in the wilderness after his baptism in Mark's gospel. You can find that there in Mark 1. You can find it in Matthew 4 or Luke 4. If you go to those chapters and read them, which I'd encourage you to do this afternoon, you will there find Christ portrayed as the second Adam, as the one who is commissioned by God as our representative And was tempted by the devil just as Adam was tempted in Genesis 3. And yet while Adam failed and was faithless and gave into temptation and partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3. What do we see of Christ in the wilderness? He's faithful. And what's more, we see him faithful in a much more difficult place, don't we? Right? He's, not, he's not tempted in a garden paradise surrounded with God's abundant provision. He's tempted in a post-fall world in a wilderness. He's tempted, Mark 1.13 tells us, surrounded by wild animals. And he's not tempted once or twice, but three times. He's tempted to deny and rebel against God. And yet, what does he do again and again? He he responds faithfully, quoting God's very words, proclaiming his trust, his submission, his loyalty to God and his word, and thus he emerges from that wilderness victorious, faithful, and true. Which is really representative of how Jesus lived his entire life. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Christ was tempted in every way that we are and yet without sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says that he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Where Adam and we all have been faithless, he has been faithful. Where Adam failed, he is faultless. Where we have been wretched, he alone is righteous. And yet, as the only one who has earned the right to eternal life, as the only one who has earned the right to reach out and take and eat from the tree of life, he has instead stretched out his arms on a tree of death for us. 
so that what he alone has earned might be given to us as a free gift. Although he alone is righteous, he took our condemnation on a cross so that his righteousness might be credited to our accounts. Although he alone is pure, he took our corruption on a cross so that we might be cleansed. Although he alone has earned the right to eternal life, he tasted death on a cross so that eternal life would now be ours in him. And what's more is he didn't stay dead, friends. Three days after his condemnation and crucifixion, he proved that he alone is righteous, that he alone is conquered, and he proved it by overcoming that grave, showing that death had no claim on him. And so he was raised to irreversible, glorious, indestructible, eternal life and is now ascended into heaven where he is preparing a place for us. And one day he will return, bringing that place down with him. And when he does, this earth will finally be Edenized. And we will be glorified in it with him. Because he will grant us access to the tree of life of which we will take and eat and live forever. Eternal life must be earned. We have not earned it. We could never earn it. But Christ alone has earned it, and he shares it with us at his own expense. With anyone willing to repent of their life of autonomy and independence from him. With anyone who's willing to turn from their life of folly to submission to his word and loyalty to his name. To anyone who is not just born in Adam, but born again in Christ. This eternal life earned by Christ Jesus is given as a free gift. All we must do is reach out and take. 